Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Jeffrey Curry has given us such good perspective with Goldman Sachs. Of course, uh, he's a guy, uh, John, who gives us a huge microeconomic foundation with his work at the University of Chicago over the years. And, and John, it's not just about oil, but it's about the commodity complex in general. Yeah. Do they get out front of a pandemic and try to expect a recovery? Well, the thing that Jeff, I think, was on top of was what would happen if we started to breach or get near to breaching storage capacity. And once we got to that point, how quickly this market would have to adjust, Tom, and everything else would just fall into place yeah. in a really small amount of time. And that's basically what you saw a month ago, the real threat of breaching storage capacity, prices plunge aggressively mm -hmm. lower, then everything else has to correct yeah. and correct fast. Must listen, must watch for Global Wall Street, Jeffrey Curry of Goldman Sachs. Jeffrey, good morning. I know that Lisa and John have a lot of oil questions. Let me ask you a general question. Do commodities expect out like equities? If equities are reaching out six months, two years, etc., do commodity participants do the same thing? At most, maybe in like oil, 30 days. Um, I mean, there is some expectations in it, but very small. And, you know, I like to point out commodities are spot assets, um, you know, financial markets, they're anticipatory assets. They look out to the future. So today's spot price for oil has to clear today's supply and demand. So, Jeff, how much optimism is being priced into that 30-day outlook for oil right now? Far too much. Um, you know, we argue that the prices above $30 a barrel, particularly on WTI, um, incentivize producers to bring supply back online that was shut off. The only way this market rebalances and creates that optimism that the market's trying to price in is if that production stays up. That's the point that Tom's making. Commodities are spot assets. Um, and so the investors go in, bid it up. They try to um, anticipate it. And by the way, every time a commodity market tries to anticipate something, it ends in tears for the investors. Jeff, given the fact that we are already seeing shale drills come back online, exactly to your point, could we see negative spot prices once again, at least in the futures market, uh, in the near-term contracts in the U.S.? Probably not. And the, the reason I say that is that the magnitude of the surpluses going back last day or this April when we saw the negative prices were unprecedented. Globally, they were running 20 to 25 million barrels per day. Oh, that, is, that is an absolute massive number. Um, having a four or 500,000 barrels per day of additional supply come back online is not going to create that same type of risk. Um, so, it's, it, so I think the only thing that could recreate that environment again would be a second wave where demand losses are as big or even worse than what we saw the first time around, which I'd argue is pretty unlikely because we know how to cope with it now. Jeff, I think the story of the last couple of days has been about demand, demand normalizing and how quickly it can normalize. We've had some reports out of China that we're back to pre-COVID levels. If you're looking at demand in China at the moment, do you have any visibility on how quickly demand is coming back online? Yeah, I'd be a little cautious. You know, I mean, they, 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 they argue it's, you know, 13 million barrels per day right now versus at December, at the end of last year, it was running 13.7. So that's still down, you know, it's still down like 3 or 4%. Um, the most recent data had it down 5%. So it's, uh, you know, I'm not going to go as far as to say that, uh, you know, 
it's a you know a full recovery. Yeah. I think the parts there's two things you take out of it. Commuting demand is up because people are too afraid to take public transport, and the jet demand is still down seriously. Uh, Jeff Curry, tell us about your world, commodities folded into some of these glide paths of the pandemic in Brazil. I, I noticed the other day Indonesia is not, not doing well at all. I mean, some of these commodity and almost commodity importing company countries are really struggling. How will the pandemic affect your world? I, I mean, the, the biggest and most direct impact is a sharp drop off in CapEx which starts to create supply problems um, further down the road. You know, we see it in oil. Uh, you know, you look at even like Exxon slash their CapEx budgets, um, decline rates begin to set in in, in the energy markets. Um, you're not making investments in all sorts of different commodities, whether if it's mining, um, which starts to create supply constraints as we look further out. So um, I would argue that, yeah, it hurts demand right now. I mean, India's gold demand was very weak. Um, but I think the longer term um, impact really is yeah. on investment. So link that framework into Brazilian real. I mean, I got to make some money here. Am I going to go weaker real going through six? I mean, link co- your commodity world into the FX world at Goldman Sachs. How do you play it? Well, I, when you when the dollar strengthens, commodity prices typically could go down, and the reason yeah. for that is you take like the, as a you get a um, weaker Chilean peso, you can pay labor becomes lower cost. And as a result, in dollars, the price of the commodity goes down. Um, in the current environment, I mean, continue to argue for further strength in the dollar when you're sitting near you know, all-time highs. Um, I think it's kind of difficult, uh, but I'm no way am I going to go out and argue that we're going to get a snapback and I want to be short the dollar. Uh, but I think, you know, it's I, I would I'm not focused on the dollar right now uh, just yeah. because it's not a, it's not a good story one direction or the other. Yeah. We're speaking with Jeff Curry, Goldman Sachs, global head of commodities research. And we've been focusing a lot on the price of oil. The other area that's been a hot spot has been the price of gold uh, reaching climbing toward all time highs when it comes to euro denominations and the dollar. It's the highest in more than seven years. I'm trying to figure out what the upside here is, what the main argument that you buy into uh, here for an ongoing strength in the precious metal is um, our, our near-term target is $1,800 an ounce so it's got you now modest upside from here I, I want to first talk about what we know above 1800 we're going into the world of the unknown um, what we do know is the two main drivers of gold demand investment demand primarily in the developed markets is very strong driven by the stimulus low real rates, and gold is just another um, defensive asset. Um, You see it in the ETF holdings have gone up sharply. Um, The other big main driver of gold is the consumption or consumer demand in emerging markets like India and China, like for, let's say, jewelry. Um, India's numbers were atrocious that came out recently. Um, The Chinese numbers um, still have yet to start to pick up. Um, and so the, the one leg that's missing, and we think you're going to get it back in China and first India is a question mark, is that consumer demand. That's what probably gets you to 1800. Now, the question is, how do you go above 1800 to the 2000s? That's the, the, the world of the unknown. You, you have to start making assumptions on inflation expectations off the back of the large stimulus. 
Um, the reason why it's difficult to, moder- mon- to model is you're running into the zero bound on nominal rates. Um, so to make the argument, you know, that, you know, gold's going to go much higher, you need real rates to go much more negative while the nominal rate stays fixed at zero. That means you have to make an assumption on inflation. Jeff, really smart stuff, as always. Jeff Curry in London. Jeff, what's London like at the moment? Have you made it into the square mile over the last month, few months, or is this work from home at Goldman? It's work, work from home. I, I, have, I haven't seen the square mile in a long time, but the weather's great here, and you know, it's, it's not as up and running as, as New York and the U.S. is. Jeffrey really Curry, miss the city. Don't you miss the city, yeah. Tom? I do. I do. I miss. I miss. Yes. I miss the square mile. You come out of Bank Station, see the Bank of England. Bonk. It's. It said. They said bonk. <laughs> you call it bonk. Bonk. <laughs> bonk in London. Bonk. Who calls it bonk? Uh, the British. They call it bonk. You're given a, a tour by a Frenchman. Or something like that. I do. I miss the city. We're going to get over there, folks, at some point here when all of this is said and done. Jeffrey Curry, thank you as always. Jim O'Sullivan joins us from TD uh, Securities. Jim, give us an update and give us uh, Chairman Powell and Secretary Mnuchin an update on your call on the unemployment rate. How high can it go? Hi, Tom and all this morning. Well, I mean, a lot of it's to do with measurement as well. I mean, it, you're citing 20% plus numbers, and arguably it is there if, if, you, if you count everybody who's suddenly become unemployed. Obviously, the number for last month was 14.7%, but I mean, if you adjust for the drop in the participation rate, and BLS suggests that some people are misclassified um, as uh, employed, but just not on their job, and they probably should have been unemployed. If you include those, the number would have been probably around 22%. So those sort of statistical issues could continue for the next couple of months. So I don't think we will necessarily see a 20% number, but we probably will see a higher number in April than we saw in May. But the hope is that after that, from June on, the numbers will start coming down again. So yes, I mean, measured maybe properly, it's a 20% plus number, but we may not actually see numbers that high. In any event, um, I mean, this is not the Great Depression in the sense that we shouldn't be extrapolating these numbers. There will be improvement in the second half of the year. We hope there will be improvement, significant improvement in the months to come. Jim, let's talk about the chairman before the Senate a little bit later this morning. We've heard so much from Chairman Powell over the last several weeks. I'm sure some people welcome that. I'm sure many others don't. What's left from Chairman Powell that you haven't heard? Um, well, Jonathan, you were just touching on the key issues from our perspective. I would not expect to get clarity on those today in terms of forward guidance. I don't think that's the focus of today's testimony, which is more about the CARES Act and the $454 billion that was allocated as capital backstop for the various 13-3 programs. Um, so, yes, absolutely, we're very interested in terms of forward guidance on the funds rate as, as well as QE, what are the conditions for ultimate tightening, which is way down the road, arguably. But um, that's, I don't think that's the focus today. It's more about the CARES Act. So given the fact that there is this focus right now on future stimulus in Washington, while the markets are basically pricing in additional fiscal stimulus, they're also pricing in a near-term vaccine, at least uh, later this year, early next year. Is it time to uh, sell in May and go away? Um, Well, I guess I, I would be cautious for sure. I mean, exactly what that means. I'm not sure in terms of equities, et cetera. I mean, equities have obviously had a had a good run here, and arguably there's a lot of optimism in there. I mean, obviously, even if we do get a vaccine, it'll it'll take a while to be to be fully up and running, and there are some promising results out there. 
Um, I, I think the net of it all is that, yeah, I mean, it's going to be a struggle to come back, but we will, we, we will see positive numbers. So, I mean, I don't think optimism is completely crazy in the sense that we shouldn't be extrapolating what we're seeing in April and into May. But that said, I mean, this is a, a big hole to climb out of. It's, it's going to be yeah. a long time for the economy to recover. Jim O'Sullivan, what is your question for Secretary Mnuchin? We, you know, we have a parlor game here with the chairman of the Fed, the vice chairman and the rest. And we've got all these smart questions we ask them. Folks, our Michael McKee will speak with Eric Rosengren of Boston later today as well. Nobody ever talks about the questions to Secretary Mnuchin. What would you ask him, Jim? Um, well, I mean, of course, the markets are, are keen on seeing what, what more in terms of fiscal stimulus. Exactly. Um, I mean, that's that's obviously an issue. And I think there is consensus that there, there is going to be another round. It's just a question of how much help is in there. Um, I think everybody agrees that states and, and cities will, will need more aid. So, again, will that question be answered today? I suspect not. But that that's obviously a, an issue for markets over the next month. I think a lot of people are upset as well, Tom, about how much has been done to loosen financial conditions. And it hasn't been contingent upon the companies that have received the benefits of that maintaining the payroll. The small business program, quite clearly, small business lending has done that. But when it comes to the Fed, the amount they've built up the balance sheet, the amount they have loosened up financial conditions so that people can still come into the capital markets and raise money. I think there's been a huge disappointment. These companies are able to tap in to really loose credit markets, largely because of what the Fed has done and not have to follow up by saying, you know what, we pledge to keep the payroll exactly where it was before COVID hit. And John, what's so important about your important comment is it's a comment for June and July. The reporting will be done on that, and that will drop, you know, there'll be some adventurous reporters, hopefully at Bloomberg News, where that will drop like a bombshell into June and July, and frankly, into the election season. That's the problem, isn't it, Jim, that we haven't really seen the large multinational payroll cuts yet. When we reopen and these big multinational companies take a look around at the demands backdrop, at the outlook for improvement, we're going to see some big job cuts, aren't we, at some of these big multinationals. Isn't that just inevitable at this point, Jim? Um, Well, I mean, it's it's, it's not – I mean, certainly big companies have contributed. It's not, I think, just the small companies that accounted for the 20 million plus. And certainly there are a lot of furloughs out there. I mean, even companies like the, the auto companies, obviously, are, are starting to come back. I mean, they're, they're, they're big companies. So I think disproportionately, yeah, it's the smaller businesses. But I think across the board, when you got the 20 million decline in April, um, and again, to the extent the economy does start to open up again, then I think there are reasons to think that the big job losses are, are behind us once we get through May. Thank you so much for being with us. Jim O'Sullivan, TD Securities Chief U.S. Macro Strategist. Never sleepy at the Bank of America. Always important to catch up, and certainly during uh, this pandemic as well. With Brian Moynihan, here is David Weston. We welcome now our Bloomberg TV and radio audiences worldwide, as we welcome also the chairman and CEO of Bank of America, Brian Moynihan. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Last time we spoke was about six weeks ago, and you said you expected a rough second quarter, down maybe 25%, some rebound in the third and fourth quarter, and then the economy really getting back to full steam sometime in 2021. A lot's happened in that six weeks. Has your view changed? Well, David, our view hasn't changed, but it comes back to what I said before. This is a health care crisis. 
And as you're starting to see the healthcare crisis be mitigated, not solved yet, you're starting to see the economy uh, start to recover, and we can talk about that. But the approach to winning uh, the war against the crisis uh, for us has been a customer-centric, community-centric, employee-centric move. And so, you know, we've been out there driving it. We've been supporting our clients and trying to make sure they have the credit and capital to uh, uh, to do what they need to do and, and help them through this trough of activity in the second quarter. And you can see that in the loan balances extended to PPP loans and other things we've done. We've helped our consumer clients through waivers so they have the ability to have better cash flow in a house. We've helped our teammates by saying no layoffs so they know their job is secure and then getting them safe and working from home. And then we've helped our communities by contributions in, uh, of $100 million in CDFI. Uh, investments, which are community development financial institutions at $250 million, of which about $170 million is already out. So all that is offsetting the impacts of the current uh, second quarter downdraft that you've seen with the unemployment numbers. And we don't see it much differently. It's just that we're starting to see us come out the other side of this, frankly. So we have heard from the Federal Reserve, and they've expressed some concern, at least, that as this pandemic continues, there may be some threat to the overall system. And specifically, they talk, for example, about commercial real estate. Are you seeing some parts of the market that are particularly vulnerable on the credit side? Remember that the the U.S. economy is going to be dependent on the activity of the consumer uh, base. And and so you always have to start there when you talk about the U.S. So even though we have this year from the Bank of America research team, which is the best in the world, you know, being minus 5%, 5.5% this year and plus 5% next year. The real question will be how do consumers behave? And, and what we've seen since the low point in the second couple, first couple of weeks of April in terms of everything, in terms of their spending because of uh, the stay-at-home edicts, in terms of their borrowing activity, uh, in terms of the uh, transfer of money, um, you saw all that fall to a lowest level. And obviously things like travel and hotels and things were most affected. But as you've seen steadily, as you went through the third week of April and on into the first part of May, you're seeing their activities pick up even in the states that are still under stay from home. And you're seeing the activity pick up much quicker in the places they're going back to work. And so for the month of May, we're seeing it down about you know, 2, 3, 4% versus last year. Uh, for the year to date, it's down a couple percent. And that's the question. The length of this is going to be how the consumers behave, given the, the high levels of unemployment that you've seen published. When people get back to work, jobs coming back in, the stimulus payments, which are all hitting the street of the last few weeks, and how it all works together to see if the consumer's behavior changed. And when, I hear, when you hear Governor, uh, Chair Powell and others, the concern I have is, have we changed consumer behavior as we look out across the next you know, four, five, six quarters? Well, that is a key question, maybe the key question, Brian, clearly. When it comes to the consumer, I know you've already taken about $4.8 billion reserve against credit, possible losses. Given the level of unemployment, which is really quite stunning, do you think that's going to be enough? Well, what you've seen so far is uh, with the consumer help, you know, we've, we've uh, granted about a million and a half payment deferrals. But if you look at the actual uh, interesting statistics, about 35 or 40 percent of the people asked for a credit card payment deferral went ahead and made the payment. And if you go and look at those consumers, what you see is because of the uh, leave aside the, the, the issue of you know, where the money is coming from, you're seeing higher balance in our account. And that's because the stimulus between you know, the EIP payments, between the enhanced unemployment, the, these measures taken by Congress and by the administration, by the Fed, have worked to offset the unfortunate aspects of very high unemployment. And so, so far, you're not seeing the delinquencies and things rise. You've, asked, you've seen payment deferrals 
uh, increase, but you're seeing them start to level off and come down in our book. And so we, we expect to see you know, charge-offs coming later on as, as, as this thing goes on. But, you, but the reality is right now you're not see, seeing the kind of credit damage that you'd expect to see with this amount of downdraft and activity. The question is what happens next, and that's what we're all watching. And to that very point, you said in the past, China, to some extent, may give us some indication. We've seen numbers coming out of China, Brian, that indicate the industrial production has come back pretty quickly. Oil consumption is coming back as well. But on the other hand, consumer, maybe not so much with retail sales. Does that give you cause for concern back here in the United States? Well, it does, because the, the question is, how did you change behavior? So when you saw China, you saw, you know, they went into this earlier, they locked down earlier, they came out earlier. And, you know, we're back in our you know offices in China, moving from 50 percent of people back to work to 80 percent. So you're starting to see a normalization of activity. And then the question is, what's the underlying activity in restaurants and, and shopping and things like that? And so you saw an immediate burst of activity as they open back up and you saw, see it fall back down. And that's what we have to watch in the United States is there'll be a burst of activity in some of these places as people who have been, you know, in their homes for six, five, six, seven, eight weeks go back out and do things. And then will that sustain? And that's where you need to look more fundamentally on things like car purchases and things like house purchases and see where they start to end up over time. But remember, the baseline projection for most people is the economy doesn't get back to its current size until you get to sort of the end of next year. That's the definition of recovery. So, But each quarter from this quarter forward is increased economic activity. And what we have to make sure, and all the policies and stimulus have been put in place are making sure, is that despite the very high unemployment, despite the issues of who's unemployed, despite the issues getting that we need to get people back to work and the human toll of all that, the stimulus is offsetting it. It is an attempt to offset that. And you have to see that play out over time. Uh, Brian, you have something like 180,000, I think, people working from home right now. You talked about what you're doing over in Asia. When do you expect them to come back and how? And by the way, how many? Will they all come back? Well, the, the idea is we have, we've always had people who worked outside the standard office setting, and that's something we do. Um, there's a great debate, you know, will this change forever, the workforce in America and where they want to work? We'll see that play out, but that is, that is further out there. In the near term, we have, we have been open every day. We have not shut down, except for the branches we closed out of, of concerns to keep our teammates safe in those, in those branches, um, we, which is about uh, 40% of the branches. Everything else has been open. We've been functioning every day, and we're beginning to open those branches, especially in the states that are reopening slowly but surely. So we have the ability to operate very well, very much under control. Our tech and ops team under Kathy Besant's leadership did a fabulous job of putting us in position to have 180,000 people work from home. So we can operate this way. So we have the luxury to go back slowly. And with social distancing requirements, with temperature taking, with all the policies that all employers want to put in place, you know, the, the ability to have the luxury of putting people back in place carefully also takes a burden off of the communities we operate in, not to have you know, a high level of cases or, or, or infections and having people move around and creating pressure on the community. So we'll, we'll go back slowly. We haven't set any plans yet. We have a top talent team working on right. the reentry back to the office. It's not right. back to work. We're working every day. It's back to the office. Yes, yeah, sure. No, I understand. Brian, finally, uh, we're going to hear from uh, uh, Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell today as part of the CARES Act, a report on that. He's been doing a fair amount of talking already. What would you like to hear from Chair Powell today? Well, I think you're going to hear from both Secretary Mnuchin and Chair Powell, but, and I think people have to stack. You know, there's a, a 
the PPP program is now, you know, still has money left. The applications are still coming in. The dollar volume of loans is is going up, but the number of loans is going up faster. So the loans are smaller and smaller. In our case, we've done 320,000 of them as of this morning, 80,000 average balance. Uh, it's 98% of the employers are under 100, 80% are under uh, 10 employees. Uh, and so these are small businesses that are getting the help they need. And so I think what you want to hear is where's the next rounds of uh, their ideas to continue to put money into the economy to help, because it's not an unlimited resource. Um, so we need to keep adding it carefully. And the areas I think that need the most help in the near term are the states because of the incredible budget pressure they've been put under. And if we don't help them, we'll see them have to make budget adjustments, which will add the unemployment burden to the hospitals and things. It's a similar issue in terms of uh, having to shut down and lose revenue, and they need to get that whole plug so they can get back to it. And in some respects, some of the nonprofits and the performance nonprofits, especially the same issue, universities. So the, the idea is the stimulus has to continue to help Americans through the unemployment assist benefits uh, uh, and things like that, but also has to, it can be targeted in the next rounds towards these places that just have operating holes that we have to decide as a society we're going to replace so that they can get back and provide the great services they provide. And so that's what you like to hear. In terms of the work, and the, the, there's a lot of discussion about facilities and usage and up and operating, a lot of these facilities were put in place to stabilize, and you see massive stabilization in the market so that you know, high-grade issuance will have another record month probably this month. Uh, 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 you know, high yield will have a strong month. Uh, you're starting to see converts and some equity deals get done. The stabilization and the fact those facilities aren't all used is actually good news. That means the markets are doing what they're doing and providing capital. So what I think people get focused on is how much money is outstanding on facility X or something. The reality is having it there provides a comfort that the private sector can drive it and the banking system can drive it. So whether it's Main Street, whether it's some of these other facilities, you know, the debate ought to be not about whether they're being used, about the good news. If they're not being used, that means you've seen stability in the funding structures. Yeah. Fascinating. Thank you so much, Brian. Really appreciate you spending time with us. That's Brian Moynihan. He is the chairman and CEO of Bank of America. We want to thank all of our radio listeners for joining us. And this is Bloomberg. One of the great joys of doing this, folks, has been over the last number of weeks, learning and speaking to the consistent excellence of the Johns Hopkins University medical team. We've talked to people at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. Of course, Michael Bloomberg, the founder of Bloomberg LP uh, is the philanthropist there, but also to their medical school and their nursing school. This morning, a conversation with Nasa Ernst. We have the adrenaline rush of the ambulances in, in the bays have diminished. But what hasn't really changed is the demand for ICU beds. Well, the, you know, the demand for the ICU beds and the ability to go into intensive care right now, what does that signal to you? Is it still a large body of older people, most vulnerable, or is it across all age groups? It's interesting. It is the majority of the age group that we're seeing here at Hopkins that's impacted is actually in the 30 to 50-year-old range. It is spread across all ranges, but that was very surprising to us to see that it wasn't just the elderly population. But, uh, Naya, you make a point, right, in saying, look, reopening isn't relaxing, but how do you change perception? Because a lot of people will say, well, look, you know, we're over the worst, so actually I can get back to a normal life. That's a very good question. One of the things that you have to do 
is you have to have a good message about the balance between science and economics and not have it as simply political all the time. And if you notice, you see it, that's what we see quite frequently. But really, the, the things that have worked are the masking, the social distancing. That part needs to stay. But are people um, understanding? Is it not clear from the authorities or are people refusing to do that? I don't know, you know what your perception is in what could be done better. Sure. So people are, they're relaxing. You know, I was out the other day and I noticed many people without a face mask and that wasn't the way it was a few weeks ago. So while I don't want this to be an acceleration of doom and gloom, I do want people to really understand that in order for us to stay ahead of this curve that we've been working so hard on, we need to keep the mask on. I saw your segment about Uganda where they're giving masks to all of the children. That's an important message. We need to keep those messages going. Masking, social distancing, washing your hands are all very important things. We are at a different place but we are not completely out of the woods yet. Nurse Ernst with us with the Johns Hopkins University School of Nursing, and we look for those updates tomorrow and here in the coming weeks as well. Uh, Cam Harvey, professor of finance at the Fuqua School of Business at Duke University, former professor of mine, actually. Uh, professor, thanks so much for joining us here. I tell you, as I think back to my Fuqua years uh, professor, I don't recall you or any of the other professors telling, teaching us anything about a pandemic and what that means for economies. Give us your sense of kind of how you're seeing the Federal Reserve, central banks around the world, Congress, how everybody's trying to react to this pandemic. What do you what do, what do, what are you seeing right now? Yeah. So first thing, uh, Paul and Tom, great to be on the show. Um, my first lecture in risk management is on something called systemic risk. And systemic risk is really hard to hedge, really hard to mitigate. And we kind of brainstorm different systemic risks. And you could think of, let's say, a nuclear war between the U.S. and Russia. Um, there's no place to hide, nowhere on Earth. Um, and one of the four systemic risks that we talk about is pandemic. And it's interesting discussion because pandemic uh, is nothing new. It's no black swan. We've had plenty of pandemics. Um, it is uh, unusual this time around, uh, given the response uh, that the economies have effectively been stopped. Uh, so if there's any black swan, it's the policy response that's completely unexpected. And you get numbers that are just off the chart. I don't um, look forward to dealing with the macroeconomic data in the future <laughs> when you've got such extreme observations. So the response is the, uh, the black swan. So the Fed, you know, I think a lot of market participants, Professor, would say the Fed has done a relatively admirable job here. They were early. They were aggressive, it appears. They were uh, I think they clearly messaged uh, kind of what they were looking to do. We heard from Chairman Powell on Sunday on 60 Minutes saying there's still more tools in his toolbox. What's, how do you kind of view the Fed's performance to date? So early on, I was very nervous. Um, and, and certain actions that they took at the beginning, I was critical of and still am. 
For example, they cut the interest rate from 1.5% to 1% really early on. That's what you're talking about being kind of early. Um, well, 1.5% is already a low interest rate. And in the global financial crisis, when they cut 50 basis points in 2007, the rate of interest they started from was 5.25%. So then they cut again from 1% to 0%. And as soon as you start doing that, you run the risk of a, a liquidity trap. That And we saw this effectively um, play out where the 30-year bond at some point was less than 1%. Who wants to buy the 30-year bond at, at less than 1%? when just a, like a moderate increase in rates, like 1%, uh, you get hammered. You'd lose 20% on that bond. Can so given, given the amount of QE going on, given the amount of money creation, uh, the risk shifts yeah. and the bonds are no longer safe haven. Only Kim, cash. one final question, if we could, Cam, and, and I want to go back to Mondigliana Miller and the idea of bonds and equities, and we all learn this, and it's all theory and, and all that as well. Most of what we're doing now, Professor, is not in those textbooks. They're not in the textbooks we used when we tried to keep up with Fama. They weren't in the textbooks Fama used when he tried to keep up with Frank Knight, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What textbook are we using right now? Yeah, so it's really hard to have a model of all possible uh, situations. And you have to kind of step back and, and figure, you know, the basics. What, what do we really know uh, about this? And one thing that we do know is that we're borrowing a huge amount of money from the future um, to kind of get through this. And we need to realize that we need to pay that back. And we pay it back either through taxes or <laughs> inflation. And also, uh, we are creating a lot of money. Uh, the Fed's balance sheet has exploded. And yes, in the global financial crisis, something similar happened and there was no inflation. Beware of extrapolating from one observation. So this combination of increased indebtedness uh, and the exploding balance sheet, to me, the major mm -hmm. risk for investors is unexpected inflation in the future. Hey, Cam, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Cam Harvey, Professor of Finance at the Fuqua School of Business at Duke University. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.